We read this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Just how big was that stone anyway? I got to thinking about that this week. It started when I was reading the previous verses, which describe how Joseph of Arimathea cared for the body of Jesus, how he wrapped it in linen, how he laid it in a garden tomb, and then, according to the Gospel of Mark, how he rolled the stone in front of the door. And I thought, wait, if one man could move the stone, couldn't three women? Instead of saying, who will roll away the stone for us, why were they not saying to one another, wow, that stone is going to be heavy, but Joseph could move it, so we should also be able to if we work together? Well, I'll tell you who does think about that. The chief priests and the Pharisees, as reported in the Gospel of Matthew, they decided to seal the stone probably by wrapping rope around its edge, covering the rope with clay or wax and affixing an imprint. And they set some men around the tomb to guard it because they were afraid that Jesus' followers might steal the body and claim resurrection, so they put extra security in place. They knew that one determined person could move that stone. I have always pictured the stone as so big Maybe I got that from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, the stone is rolled away by an angel, and the movement causes an earthquake. By the time of Matthew's Gospel, likely written a little later than Mark's, the the stone seems to have grown in size and importance to the story, as suggested by the fact that the angel addresses the women while perched saucily atop the stone. So if you're a long-time reader of the Gospels, you've probably got a mental picture of the stone. How big is it in your mind's eye? Is there any significance in the size of the stone? Is it so large in your mental picture that no human could roll it away? In the nation of Chile, under a mountain in the Atacama Desert, lies what remains of the San Jose Mine. The tallest building in the world measures about 2,700 feet, 
The San Jose mine was about as deep as that building is tall. The drive from the mine's entrance down the long circling ramp to its lowest point was about four miles. In a pickup truck, it would take you about 40 minutes. On August 5th, 2010, that mine collapsed. I'm quoting here from a New Yorker article by Hector Tobar. A single block of granite-like stone called diorite, as tall as a 45-story building, had broken loose and was falling through the layers of the mine, knocking out sections of the ramp and creating a chain reaction as the mountain collapsed. Men inside the mine were thrown across its chambers and waves of pressure made them feel as if their skulls were bursting. The mountain, writes Tobar, had become a pulsating mass and boulders emerged from the blackness and bounced downhill. A group of miners scrambled into a truck and drove up the ramp as far as they could, one man walking ahead with a flashlight to guide them through the dust. When they could go no farther, they got out of the truck and walked about 50 yards. And Tobar writes, the beams of their flashlights struck a bluish-gray surface of diorite, a smooth wall of rock that now blocked the ramp completely. One of the men, Luis Ortua, later said that it looked like the stone they put over Jesus' tomb. How big was the stone over Jesus' tomb? Maybe it depends on where you are, outside the entrance, or trapped inside. Hector Tobar's story of the San Jose mine disaster is one of the most powerful stories I have ever read. I cannot read it without weeping. And I'm telling you about it this Easter Sunday because it is such a dramatic picture of what it is like to be on the wrong side of the stone, the hell side, where you know the stone is beyond any human power to move. When Luis Ortua said it looked like the stone over Jesus' tomb, he wasn't picturing a stone that Joseph of Arimathea could roll away by himself. For the 33 miners trapped below the surface, the size of the stone determined the magnitude of the crisis. The stone in front of Jesus' tomb was a symbol of profoundest separation from everything, from the world, from life, from God. For the first 17 days, the men lived off of a small store of emergency food supplies meant to sustain them for about 36 hours. Their meal on the second day, one teaspoon of canned tuna and two cookies apiece, would seem like a feast in the days to come. Emergency water supplies were gone in a day. After that, they drank water from industrial tanks tainted with motor oil. In the sweltering underground heat, the men slept, they talked, they wrote diaries, they starved, and they sought alternate exits without success. After one such search, Mario Sepulveda, something of a leader in the group, told the others, the only thing we can do is to be strong, super disciplined, and united. They began gathering daily for prayer. Their prayer meeting eventually included sessions of self-examination where the men apologized for ways that they had hurt the group. 
The description of those meetings is deeply moving and is all by itself reason enough to read this article, which I hope you will. There is going to be a link to it on the website. On August 8th, about 78 hours into their ordeal, the men heard far above them the noise of a drill. For the first time, they knew that people on the other side of the stone were looking for them. And that made a difference. Victor Segovia wrote in his diary, we are more relaxed. Down here, we're all going to be family. We're brothers and friends. But the next day, exhausted, he wrote, the drilling is going really slowly. God, when are you going to end the torment? I want to be strong, but I have nothing left to give. It took another 13 days for the drill to break through. And when it did, said Carlos Mamani, it felt like a hand had punched through the rock and reached out to us. The drill created an opening through which they could breathe fresh air, receive food, and communicate. But getting them out of the mine took another six weeks. Meanwhile, celebrity descended upon them. Says Tobar, offers of money for interviews and endorsements reached their family members. The men's sudden wealth and their growing fame led many to bicker. For the first time, the men began to fight about religion, and attendance at the daily prayers dropped off. Mario Sepulveda said he could see the insect of greed and vanity destroying the brotherhood, and he descended much deeper into the mine alone to pray that God would make the group as united as they had been before. When he returned covered with mud and others asked him where he'd been, he answered, I was fighting the devil. This article was published in 2014, and I have kept it in my files for these seven years. I've kept it to remind myself of how things changed with the anticipation of freedom, how those miners who had clung to one another for support, who had prayed together daily, who had heard each other calling out in the night as they dreamed of loved ones, who cut canned peaches into fingernail-sized slices and then sacrificed their own share for each other. How this group, at first united in terror and in hope on the wrong side of the stone, began to fight as soon as a hand punched through. I've thought about that especially lately, as our world begins to hope that we may emerge at last from the pandemic. As best I can recall, a year ago, we seemed a whole lot more united than we do right now. Maybe we can understand what Mario Sepulveda means about wrestling with the devil. On October 5th, 2010, all 33 men came out of the mine. On the surface, they learned that freedom from the mine did not make them free. Trauma had its claws in them and did not let go. They had mood swings and nightmares and physical manifestations of their emotional stress. They found it almost impossible to talk about what they had been through. After a year, one of the men asked a relative who was also a miner to take him to work with him down in another mine. Life on the surface felt like too much to handle. Going underground again would put a barrier between himself 
and that difficult life. Maybe he would feel safer back on the hell side of the stone. That stone in the gospel stories wasn't so big, but no stone of any size was any barrier between Jesus Christ and life. Perhaps the stone in the gospel stories is for us more a reminder of the barriers that we roll into place between ourselves and life. For the miners, the size of that stone truly determined the size of their crisis. But for many of us, the size of our crisis may determine the size of the stone. The more help we need, the bigger the stone we're likely to roll into the path between us and God. If by some miracle a hand punches through, we might just go looking for a bigger stone. And if against all expectations we are rescued, the darkness may persist in calling us back promising us that life is easier on the hell side. But my brothers and sisters, if that were true, would God have bothered with resurrection? It's interesting what happened to the stone as the gospel stories went on. In Luke and John, the only word about the stone is that it was already rolled away, standing aside for the rest of the story which in these two Gospels is full of personal encounters and instructions for going forward. In Luke, two men in white tell the women they should be looking elsewhere for Jesus. Why do you look for the living among the dead? They urge the women to remember the things that Jesus told them. In John, Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Christ outside the tomb, the stone forgotten behind her. On Jesus' instructions, she returns to the disciples, bringing a proclamation, I have seen the Lord. The Gospels came into form at the same time that the early church was developing. And it seems that as Gospels and church developed, the story of Jesus' resurrection moved from who will roll the stone away to what are we supposed to do now? Now that we know Jesus lives, now that the barrier between life and death is gone, and the scriptures answer, seek Jesus. Remember what he told you. Tell people you have seen him. Never mind the barrier you think is in your way. Never mind the size of that stone. The stone is gone. And you don't even have to ask who rolled it away. Just stop looking for life on the wrong side of it. God has brought about a resurrection. Christ is alive, and so are you. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs>